0: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek.
1: And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we are welcoming to the podcast uh, Professor Mark Paul from Rutgers University, who has just written a new book called Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights. And this is a book which is uh, pretty much what it says on the tin. Uh,
0: (laughs) to be fair, to be fair, it's the ends of freedom. If you think the, the article is really important, the ends of freedom.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, reconfiguring American society away from low tax neoliberalism up to high tax social democracy, uh, you know, a broad guarantee of social rights for housing, education, health care, basic income, all the good stuff that we know and love. Um, and situating it in an American context, uh, that's, uh, you know, uh,
0: legible and readable. It's true. Actually, it's, a, it's, it's quite a good read. Nice mix of history. Uh, you know, really, it, it moves and yet it has a lot of. Policy details, historical details, and very strong evidence and arguments in favor uh of this normative vision. So not just this is how things should be, but these are the reasons why the opposing view is uh nonsense, both empirically, economically, and normatively. So he does a nice takedown of Friedman and Hayek and uh and you know, you see some of your some of our faves, Thomas Paine, FDR, you know, uh a uh, uh, Martin Luther King and, and a number of other historical figures along the way, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at the risk of self flattery I think this is a similar type of uh, effort to my book, you know, where you're trying to connect up normative moral philosophy with economic theory and then, with concrete political proposals for what we can actually do in the here and now to fix all the fucking problems, uh, of which That's there it. are many. Um, yeah, and, I like your
0: book. It is it's super accessible uh, without yeah. losing any nuance or rigor, which is a nice, a difficult combo, actually. Yeah, yeah, and
1: uh, you know, it's 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 always a difficult question when you're talking about a book at this level of ambition. It's like, do you you actually try to like dot every single I and cross every single T in which case the book will be 900 pages long and no one will read it unless you're Thomas Piketty uh, and happen to get a huge (laughs) burst of media coverage randomly. Or do you try to make it a little bit more, you know, easily legible? Uh, And he opted for the latter option, which I think is probably the right one in most circumstances, people, you know, generally don't read this, the, 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 treatise style of thing. And, um, but anyway, you know, it's a serious book. It's not, you know, it's not truncated. Right. It's not dumbed down. Um, and it's a good read. So.
0: And a good conversation to come. Just a
1: yes, yes. A great uh great interview. But before we get to it, I gotta remind uh listeners that we're sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine here at Left Anchor Industries. Um <laughs>
0: <laughs> Working under the, the whip un- under the whip of David Dan, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, ju- you know, says <laughs> <laughs> Send your, uh, emails or letters to, uh, left anchor tower, uh, uh, 900 <laughs> broad street in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, the, but yeah. So if you subscribe to our Patreon at the, uh, $10 a month tier, you'll get a free digital subscription to the magazine. Plus our, um, bonus episodes plus our uh, discounted print subscription. Subscribe at $5 a month and you'll get just the uh, bonus episodes. Otherwise, uh, enjoy the free stuff. Rate review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are on your podcasts. And, uh, you know, send it to your grandma. She'd probably enjoy it. (laughs)
0: That's right. Absolutely. Well, appreciate you all. Uh, Enjoy the episode. That'll come to you right now.
1: So, Mark, welcome to the show. Happy to have you. Uh, Your book is called Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights. And, you know, you, you kind of start off, you know, towards the beginning talking about an economic bill of rights and this is something that, you know, famously has some resonance with, um, you know, America's greatest president, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, as our previous guest, Harvey Kay, who would be happy to talk your ear off about. Um, but so can you explain, to start us off, uh, your sort of framing of an economic bill of rights and how it differs from uh, Roosevelt's conception of that?
2: Sure. So, uh, first of all, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, the book really tries to lay forth an economic bill of rights for the 21st century. You know, here we are, uh, nearly a hundred years after Roosevelt first introduced the original idea of an economic bill of rights as the culmination of the New Deal this was his promise to the american people to truly secure freedom from want for each and every person living here in the united states uh, but you know I, I felt that the idea needed an update for two reasons one is the economy has changed substantially over these past 100 years we have these crazy things like the internet today you know we're having this conversation over zoom for instance um we also you know have have a, a economy that's shifted substantially away from agriculture which you know accounted for more than a third of the workforce when Roosevelt was president to today here, we have less than 1% of the workforce in agriculture as just one example. And we're also dealing with different crises. You know, the, the crises really at the forefront today, compounding the inequality crisis, the same issue Roosevelt was dealing with, uh, is the crisis of climate change. And so I wanted to update the economic bill of rights and also try to reinsert it into the conversation. You know, You talk to folks today and you ask them, what do Democrats stand for? And I think they're just going to shrug their shoulders and look confused at you. Now they might say not neoliberalism, uh, but they're not going to tell you an affirmative vision, which I think is a real shame. And, you know, here I think we have this opportunity to pivot Democrats and have them, you know, really talk about a comprehensive economic agenda to address both economic and security, which is rampant and poverty, and to ensure that that vision is grounded kind of in the American tradition. Uh, And so the Economic Bill of Rights that I lay out includes most of the economic rights that Roosevelt put forth. But I add two uh, new ones, namely the right to a basic income and banking services and the right to a healthy environment where I really address the environmental crisis, the other thing I should note, you know, folks who hopefully pick up the book uh, will see that there are a number of chapters that go through each of the rights that I propose, but I don't mean to say that these are the only rights we should be consider, I, I, considering. I mean to start a conversation here. So one of the rights that gets kind of... Um, Unfortunately, you know, sh- just a short uh, discussion in the book is this idea of the right to a union, perhaps with the PRO Act or something stronger. Um, and you know, I think that's a right that absolutely needs to be at the forefront of our conversations, particularly given the resurgence of labor we've been seeing. I'm a professor at Rutgers University. We just went on strike. I feel so lucky to have been able to experience a strike. Uh, as a worker, and to uh, feel the solidarity uh, of of my colleagues and the unions in our region that, that came and joined us on the picket line, uh, and it was a tremendous learning experience, and we just had tremendous economic uh, and and job security gains for our most vulnerable workers at the university through that. Uh, so I think the right to a union, you know, needs to be at the forefront of our conversations as we seek to rebuild.
0: Congrats, by the way. Thank
2: you. Thank yeah. you. Fantastic. Yeah. You, you know what? Uh, <laughs> That's huge. That's huge. I, I got to, to be on the picket line every single day. Let me say that is work. And uh, it, it was a beautiful way to meet my colleagues. I've only been at Rutgers a year. And so I got to meet folks from all different departments across ranks because you had non-tenure track faculty, adjuncts, grad students, and tenure track faculty all striking together, uh, which was really one of the broadest and deepest strikes we've ever seen at a major university here in the United States.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and let me, I wanted to talk about this later, but since, since you brought it up, um, <clears throat> you know, the, you'd uh, the, the right to an education being incredibly important, um, and as well as the right to a union. And I think that one aspect of that, which maybe tends to get lost in the mainstream discussion of stuff like strikes, is one of the principal focuses of the union, um, you know, the organizers and the members, uh, which is the preservation and functioning of the institution itself. Um, and in my experience, uh, you know, talking with, uh, a lot of academics and being married to one, like the dysfunction of the Academy is just like beyond belief. And yet you look at the prices, the amount of money that's being dedicated to educational institutions and especially universities, it's, it's, uh, never been higher. And so like, you know, part of these strikes, I think mainstream media tends to frame it as like, well, the grad students want more money. That's probably that's part of it, you know. Like we want, you know, ten years. But we also want like the institution to still exist in twenty years, you know, to when pe- that there can be a thing called Rutgers that people can still go to, you know, when when you have retired and you know the next generation of people are, are coming up. Um, So you know. Maybe can you speak to that aspect of you know the 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 rice discussion in a way that's sort of like so, like socially situated, to, you know, to to where it's not it's 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 not just like sort of people demanding stuff from the government, you know, demanding stuff from from employers and and whatnot. It's it's also about like the coherence of society and the coherence of institutions. I think is sort of subtext of what you're talking about.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, one crucial question here is what does the government owe each and every one of us? And when we're talking about the government, we're not talking about some alien body or some imperial force. We're talking about the government of the people, for the people, by the people, as Lincoln put it. And so what does a government run for the people do with the economy? Well, I think that we need to move an economy away from focusing on short-term profits and extraction towards one focusing on promoting human flourishing. There's this ideal that we talk about a lot here in America, and it's this ideal of democracy. And what I really try to put forth in the book is that we just need to deepen democracy into the economic realm, not just talk about it in the political realm where it's under increasing um Increasing stress uh, and attack today, but we also need to, instead of just being on defense, be on offense and try to push that into uh, the economic realm, so that workers have a right to say in their workplace. So that's really what you know the strike at Rutgers, for instance, was about was about worker you know you know worker security uh, as well as decent compensation people. Want, you know, need to be able to make a living wage. I mean, we have a president, we're talking about uh, how expensive universities have gotten. We have a president who makes $1.2 million a year, plus gets a house and a car, um, you know, while the grad students are making below $30,000 a year. So when you, you know, talk about how affordable college is, you know, the number one place that we should be looking at is that administrative bloat, both in the number of administrators And in their salaries, you know, when I was actually an undergraduate at UMass Amherst, my alma mater, I did an analysis when the administration was trying to hike uh, tuition and fees on undergrads. And I just said, hey, if we had wage compression and lowered every administrator's salary to $250,000, would we be able to make up for the entire budget shortfall that they're saying, you know, necessitated a tuition hike? And the answer was yes. You're to tell me $250,000 is a decent salary for an academic administrator? I think it's just fine. Um, so, you know, it actually brings us to, to one of Roosevelt's other brilliant points, which is if we want to ensure we have a well-functioning economy that doesn't allow for capture by the wealthy, in other words, oligarchy, which is where we find ourselves today, we need to not only talk about things like minimum incomes, but we also need to talk about things like maximum incomes. And Roosevelt actually put forth, you know, this idea that we need floors and ceilings and marketplaces in order to kind of embed the market in society rather than embed society in the market. And I think that's a really important switch that we need to make here in order to, to really put people at the center of the economy. And if we were to put a decent ceiling in the market, you know, we could can and should have a conversation about what that might look like. You know, maybe it's it's 425000 as a maximum income, which is essentially what Roosevelt put forth accounting for inflation today. Maybe it's a little bit less than that. Maybe it's, you know, you're going to tell me, well, it should be a million or two million. I, I don't know the answer, but I think it's a conversation we should be having. And I think that's the type of conversation that ensures that the institutions within the economy start to actually function on a more equitable and level playing field rather than, you know, a bunch of us... Workers essentially being, you know, more or less indentured servants for the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk's of the world who get to live like modern
0: day kings. Right. Absolutely. I, I, I really, first of all, Mark enjoyed your book so much because of it, it's a, a, a quite a balance of uh, policy detail, history, political theory. Uh, as well as like sharp argumentation with bogus arguments that would seek to, to counter, um, the ideas and proposals in it. Really just well, well done. Um, I, usually you have to have a trade-off for, uh, depth, but then the book is, you know, you could use it as a doorstop or you have something that's nice and concise, but the meat isn't there. So first of all, that I found that really great, but being the theory guy, Um, you know, it's called the ends of freedom and these, these rights for the 21st century, these economic rights, uh, strike me as, um, Let's get to the definition of freedom that we're appropriating here, because we have this struggle on the left, not just for an affirmative vision, vision, as you said, but for combating the vision of the right. And part of this is, is redefining and reappropriating what freedom means. And it, it occurs to me that, uh, when you talked about introducing economic, uh, democracy and introducing democracy into the economy, um, uh, we're also trying to understand that that's related to what you mean by positive freedom uh, as against negative freedom and that freedom properly understood is about democracy and is also about uh really flourishing uh more than just individualistic protection against tyranny or something right so can you talk a bit about that kind of theoretical framing that that fits the history and the policies uh, within it
2: yeah. So, you know, freedom is the most powerful word in our political discourse, yet progressives have really completely ceded the word to conservatives for a reason that's just beyond my comprehension. And so, you know, I I got really interested in rethinking freedom about a decade ago. You know, I did not go to school for political theory. I'm an economist by training but I, I understand the power of the idea of freedom. And I was thinking to myself, you know, freedom can't just be shrinking the government down to size where you can strangle it in the bathtub, as Grover Norquist essentially summed it up, right? That, that, that can't just be freedom. I mean, uh, Thomas Paine, one of the most radical, perhaps the most radical founders, I think, put this so nicely and arguing that, you know, people don't join a society. They don't come into a society to have fewer rights than they did before, or to you know to, which means to just simply ensure that government is minimized, they come in to ensure that government is there and is functioning for their well-being and that they get to participate in that community um, as part of a member, be it as you know a voting uh, individual or somebody who's actually in the government itself. And so I found I stumbled upon the work of Isaiah Berlin, an Oxford philosopher, who puts forth these two ideas of freedom, kind of negative freedom and, and positive freedom. Negative freedom is the freedom we're familiar with today and that dominates our conversations and in the American dialogue. And it's freedom from constraint, uh, most famously outlined in the Bill of Rights. But let's remember when the Bill of Rights were penned, we, you know, the, the American people were rebelling against a monarchy this is you know that was their government today our government is not a monarchy though if if trump takes the next election and republicans continue with gerrymandering i'm i'm pretty concerned uh about you know <laughs> if if we can still call ourselves some form of democracy at that point but let's hope let's hope we're not don't get uh, have to go down that road uh you know nevertheless uh, the founders actually had a, a much more nuanced and radical vision of freedom than what we give them credit for. Now, people like Payne and Hamilton uh, talk extensively about positive freedom. It's what your society owes you. And Payne actually go, goes into this in depth in common sense, which is the kind of the most incendiary pamphlet of the American Revolution, where he calls for things like, you know, a um, providing people with a cut of the wealth, not as charity, but a piece of the wealth simply as your citizen right, as your birthright for being a part of a society. And Payne believed deeply that in order to have a functional democracy, you needed some degree of economic equality. And I think he was absolutely right. And, you know, that idea was carried forth through you know, the radical Republicans in Lincoln who engage in widespread land redistribution or through Roosevelt, who, you know, essentially fought World War II for freedom. He put forth his famed four freedoms, one of which was freedom from want. And out of that came the economic Bill of Rights that we're speaking about here today. But other, you know, other famous American luminaries also carried this idea forward. Most famously, perhaps, is Martin Luther King who fought not only for civil and political rights, but for economic rights. Yet we don't really talk about that as part of his legacy, which I think is a huge shame. It was the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, not just for the right to vote.
1: <clears throat> that's right. That's right. I want to I want to real quick, though, drill in on this Isaiah Berlin thing real quick. You, you talk about this in the book a, a bit, you know, be. Uh, because I don't know, I'm convinced I'm not a political theory guy. I'm not a theory guy of any kind. You know, my brain barely works at the best of times. Uh, but I think that this distinction between negative and positive liberty sort of doesn't really hold up, especially when you're talking about libertarians, you know, like, like Hayek, uh, you mentioned Friedrich on Hayek uh, the, you know, the, the famous libertarian road to serfdom guy, right. Um, in the middle of world war two is like, if we do the welfare state, we're going to become a communist dictatorship. Um, somehow it didn't happen after we passed Medicare, but maybe, you know, the effects have just been waiting to take form. but anyway, you know, the libertarians like him, they're all about private property, private property rights to, to, you know, to, to have permanent bequeathable, um, rise to a particular piece of ground or, or ownership shares in a corporation and that sort of thing. And like this negative liberty is the liberty of the state to not interfere with your ownership of these things. But when you get down to the functioning of how the, that actually happens, right? Uh, If you don't agree that this particular person, you know, uh, owns this particular piece of ground, like say you're a native American, uh, member of a, you know, tribal grouping in the United States and you don't agree with this, uh, mining claim that a, that a, a, a corporation does just like thrown down according to like 150 year old law on your ancestral homeland, then what happens in that case? Well, they'll send the cops after you or the army, you know, they'll use armed agents of, of state violence to prevent you from accessing that particular, t- you know, piece of ground. And so like, freedom to when you're talking about private property like that the distinction just it just sort of like melds into itself and i think in a way as you suggest in your book uh it 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 tends to suggest that like you know the sort of apparatus of coercion including the state and the military and all the regulatory apparatus and everything else ought to be you know um operated in such a way that it expands the lived freedom of everyone at the same time, you know, rather than saying like this type of government coercion, we're just not going to talk about. And this type of government coercion is going to get special distinction because now we're regulating as opposed to when we set up the law and the courts and the corporate law and labor law and securities law and all that stuff. Can you uh, tell listeners about that a little bit? Yeah,
2: you know, it's really interesting when we actually unpack the ideas of Hayek and Friedman, who, you know, kind of purport to just support this notion of negative liberty. But really what it is, is it's negative liberty, plus, you know, the police state, plus, you know, the white superiority. Um, I, I think you could even go as far as in Friedman's case of, of arguing he was essentially a white nationalist. I mean, uh, his writings are are, are pretty Pretty troubling when it comes to particularly the public school system, um, you know, plus the free market. So, in order, you know, they both understood that for. Markets to work or what they deem to be a free market. Both of them know this notion of free market was never feasible and that, you know, the, the calling it a free market in the first place was purely a rhetorical device. Um, but, you know, both of them knew that you would needed a state actor in order to ensure private property rights for the right people, as you highlight, um, and to ensure that markets exist and actually function in the first place. And so, you know, both of them supported state sanctioned violence, particularly Friedman to to quite a substantial extent. Now, one thing I do want to highlight here that's pretty interesting is, you know, how Moderate, both the early Friedman and earlier Hayek were, particularly Hayek. I mean, you know, Hayek supported a universal healthcare system. Friedman supported some form of a basic income. Uh, per, you know, granted he wanted to get the the welfare state writ large, but he did want government regulation of markets to actually support competition in his earlier writings. um in 1951, he wrote this piece, kind of outlining his original ideas on neoliberalism. And he was, you know, kind of lambasted the original laissez-faire order as, as utterly failing. And, and the American people weren't going to buy it. And Friedman knew this. I mean, anybody in a shantytown or a breadline during the Great Depression saw that, that, you know, the, the quote unquote free market was a absolute myth and just led to mass immiseration. And so Friedman and Hayek were part of this group that was trying to invent neoliberalism to save classic liberalism, but augment it. In a way that did not lead to socialism, but also did not lead to shanty towns and breadlines of, of the Hoover era. And so, you know, this is this is where they ended up landing. Now, later on, particularly in Friedman's career, he hardened considerably, and you know, basically said even in terms of widespread market failures like environmental crises, he thought the EPA wasn't worth its weight in paper. Uh, so, so Friedman really went went to quite the extreme and started embracing you know classic liberalism, um, exactly what he he pushed against earlier in his career. But he also, I mean, hey, he was a New Dealer too for a little while there.
1: Yeah, you, you see, perhaps it's like a, you know, no atheists in foxholes t- moment happening there, you know, or it was like, uh, the, these ideas are great in the abstract. And so, uh, you know, uh, they're, but once they blow the world up, then suddenly maybe we need to think twice about, um, environmental regulation or dealing with depressions or, you know, but once you've been fat and happy off of New Deal largesse for 30 years then you can go back to the old medicine.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, Freeman couldn't get a job out of academia. He got a job with the government
0: through the New Deal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Ungratefuls!
0: Talk about welfare queens, yeah. you know. Um, so but this is important to drill down on, I think, um, Mark, because. Neoliberalism, as, you know, Quinn Slobodian and others uh, have shown, is, is very much about using the state in order to privatize and expand markets. And, and maybe it's worth talking about, you know, the, the right-wing idea of freedom as access to markets, um, because, Really, what it's about when we privatize things in this way, in these in these ways, right? We're really doing, as Elizabeth Anderson said, creating private governments, private authoritarian governments, uh, very often. And so uh, maybe we can talk about that because there's a lot of debunking of what the rights understanding of freedom really is that's that's required and that you do in your book. Um, So we can just start going through it if you want.
2: Sure. So so I'm really glad you brought in the work of Elizabeth Anderson because uh, her work's been fairly influential in shaping my thoughts. And this notion of private government, I think, was was really spot on. I mean, you know, if we're trying to protect people from coercion, uh, what at uh, the, the idea that neoliberals put forth in the first place, what we see is that neoliberalism utterly failed on their own terms, because while it, you know, might push to limit government scope minus the police state, uh, it certainly did nothing to protect individuals from coercion by employers. Uh, and so really neoliberal, the neoliberal project just really fell flat in that front. Um, and so I think that's important to, to lift up and to, to examine because, you know, people are truly at the whim of their employers. They are in servitude to their employers. One of the reasons progressives fight for tight labor markets like we're in today is precisely to provide workers actual freedom, to provide them an actual exit option, where if you have a shitty employer who sexually harasses you or who won't let you take a bathroom break or who, you know, punishes you for your political beliefs, you actually have the ability to say, screw you, I'm going to go somewhere else. that That's actually freedom, right? The freedom to walk off the job. This is where I agree with Milton Friedman. He named his book Free to Choose. I agree with him. I would like people to be free to choose. The question is, how do we get there? Um, and, and, you know, the current economy is certainly not it.
0: And our, yeah. Are the choices meaningful? And I think we'll get to how your proposals like the job guarantee and basic income uh – Work together to provide meaningful choices. But I uh, just sticking with Elizabeth Anderson for a second that you bring up a great quote, uh, an analogy to Mussolini and, and fascism because there's this right wing talking point, uh, which you just kind of debunked because there's often not an exit. You can't actually find another job very often, depending on your situation. Um, but the, you know, the right wing likes to say, well, you can always quit. If, if your boss is a tyrant, you can always quit. And And Anderson says, uh, oh, okay. So, so just because people under Mussolini could like emigrate, and leave the country Then Mussolini wasn't a fascist. <laughs> like that, that analogy doesn't hold water. It's still we're describing the same type of behavior uh, on the job, right? Yeah,
2: I mean, I mean, that's that's absolutely right. And we can extend this into so many different spheres of the economy, like, you know, people's landlord. It's like, you know, oh, you have a shitty landlord. Just move. Well, first of all, the cost of moving is about $5,000 on average. When a third of Americans don't even have $400 to cover emergency expense, how are they supposed to move? Um, and then, you know, second of all, how, how are you supposed to find the time to move when you're holding down a job and a half plus have kids that, you know, don't have after school care and, you know, have summers off with no paid, paid child care and the like. So I, I, I think it's a, a false choice. And the question is, how do we provide people with real and meaningful choices? To be and do what they have reason to value. That's what I want to get at here in this book is, is providing people with actual opportunities to live meaningful and dignified lives, and not to be worried about where their next meal is going to come from, or are they going to have a roof over their head if they do follow their dreams. You know this American idea, of follow your dreams. I mean, it's right? bullshit. You know, you follow your dreams and, and you end up at McDonald's flipping burgers. I mean, that, that's what that's gonna and you know you're you're gonna end up with in <laughs> yeah. in many instances.
0: And rolling the dice on cryptocurrency, you know, like trying to just hit the jackpot. Right?
2: Yeah, that yeah, that really no, worked out so well.
1: Yeah, my I mean, Dogecoin collection is going up, baby. There, there's it's guaranteed. Gaia, Elon Musk told me so. Um, it can only I wanna, go up. I can I want to ask you though you said you said Mark, uh, reason to value that that sounds to me like amartya Sen. Um, are you influenced by him at all in the in in your sort of thinking about like moral philosophy?
2: Yeah, you know, the, Amartya Sen and Nassbaum really influenced me quite a bit here. In my graduate studies, I, I read extensively both Marx and Sen, who are, you know, two of the more foundational economists in my thinking. More recently, um, you know, I, I really do want to give a shout out to Martin Haglund, who wrote this beautiful book called This Life. Uh, that was perhaps my favorite book of the past two oh, or yeah. three years that I've read. And it, it really just talks about how, You know, time is the most valuable thing we each have. And, you know, precisely what the the modern day capitalist system does is rob us of of time to actually, you know, do what we have reason to value, whether that's sitting on our couch, you know, watching Netflix or playing the guitar or spending time with my nine month old. Uh, Or today I spent my whole day gardening. And let me tell you. That was a wonderful day. I could not think of a better way to spend my day. But I need some pretty good job security to be able to spend a Monday gardening, uh and, and relaxing. And and that's the world we can and should have. I mean, Keynes wrote near a hundred years ago. Uh, In this beautiful essay, The Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren, that we should all be working just 15 hours a day by now. And here we are working 47 hours a day on average in America, a month more than they do in Germany. And I think that's a great example of robbing us of our actual freedom.
1: A week, you mean? Yeah.
2: yeah. No, a month. Yeah. Americans work a month more on average than Germany.
1: 15 hours a week rather than... Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, Thank you for the correction.
0: We love Hogland. We did a couple episodes on, on this life. And, um, yeah. And the Keynes uh, essay was eerily accurate in its predictions of GDP and how capitalism would actually create the wealth necessary to have, you know, that kind of leisure time. Uh, but he perhaps didn't understand, like maybe Marx did, um, how ideology functions. So that, like with the increases in wealth and productivity capacity, workers would just be forced to work more. So that's that's why part of your book is so important, not just the policy proposals, but the, the understanding of not just mass politics, but the kind of theorizing necessary um, to... To put those in action, to convince people that, uh, we deserve this, this future.
1: Well, right? let, let's talk about that though. Let's talk about policy because, you know, it is, I wrote a paper for Matt Brunig, the leisure agenda paper that, that was, you know, part of it is just looking at what's happened to working hours in the United States, um, as compared to European countries and, and this and many other indicators, like about 1980, you know, we're basically in the middle of the pack of rich countries, and then we just stop improving or start getting worse. Uh, life expectancy, hours worked, um, all this uh, manner of stuff. Everybody else is getting better except for us. Uh, but, you know, pro- you wouldn't say Denmark is the uh, Keynes utopia of 15 hours a week, but it's closer to it, a lot closer than... Uh, the United States, you know, we're talking about like an extra 10 weeks of vacation, something like that, depending on who's in first place being the laziest country in the world. Um, so can you tell us about, you know, your, your, your package of solutions here? You've got social housing, college, Medicare for all basic income. Um, you know, I mean, we don't have to get into super close detail and all of this, but like sort of give us a, an overview of, of, of what you want to, you know, change um, and how they would sort of like fit together.
2: Sure. So, you know, the economic rights try to cover the most crucial needs of the American people while acknowledging that the market's actually halfway decent at some things. So let me take food as one example. You know, there's not a right to food in here because if people have, you know, the right to work plus the right to a basic income, then you know things like the right to food are actually I think fairly well covered. And and let me just say a little bit more on that. Yeah, you know, I went to the grocery store today and, you know, rhubarb was on sale. Now why was rhubarb on sale? Because rhubarb's in season right now. And I think the grocery store does a decent job at telling me, you know, what food I should be buying, uh, and, and what the, you know, what is in season and, and also providing me with choices. I mean, your average grocery store has over 60,000 options for American consumers. Now we could talk about how we have an unhealthy food system. We do. We can talk about how we need to price in the externalities associated with. A lot of our, you know, monoculture and our, you know, CAFO system to raise, raise uh, animals, and and we should. There's lots of improvements to be made, but I think in general the market does a fine job at telling me if I should buy apples or oranges. What the market doesn't do a fine job at is things like ensuring I have healthcare or a job or a decent place to live. And so the economic rights cover the most important aspects of a person's life. So the first one is a right to work. Uh, which is ensuring that everybody has access to well-paying employment. This was the first right that Roosevelt put forth as well. And that could be done through a job guarantee program coupled with an expansion of the public sector. You know, here in the U.S., our public sector is less than uh, half of the size it is in most Scandinavian countries and about half the size of what it is in France. Um, And then finally, running the economy hot. You know, right now, we're we're actually... Doing that, though, the Fed is slamming on the brakes to the best of their ability with 10 consecutive rate hikes. Uh, But, you know, if we actually run a hot economy, we can have far more people in paid employment um, than they would otherwise. But, you know, we can raise the minimum wage all day. But until we actually implement a job guarantee, workers don't have a guaranteed fallback position to leave their workplace, and so, in work I've done with Sandy Darity, Derek Hamilton, and other colleagues, we've, you know, really fleshed this notion out. Um, the the other rights, you know, right to housing. You know, people always talk about how gas is the most visible price in the economy, and it is. We drive by gas stations multiple times a day uh, for most folks. Uh, but housing is the most important price in the economy. I mean, it accounts for the majority of. Uh, It accounts for the majority of Americans as the largest budget item on a monthly basis. And unfortunately, you know, what we see is that half of renters can't afford to pay their rent today in America, their rent burden, according to the government definition. And so a right to housing just ensures that everybody has floor under their feet and a roof over their head. And that we move the housing sector away from a nexus of profit to one of supporting homes and communities for people. Um, Some of the other rates that I go through essentially acknowledge the market failures that exist. So earlier we talked about how we have to set floors and ceilings in markets, essentially putting up bumper rails around markets. But there's other areas where just the market shouldn't play a role. And one example is healthcare. Where we just need to flat out decommodify healthcare. You know, there's no reason we should allow markets to play any role in the delivery of life saving essential care, uh, that, that people require. And so in that case, you know, I advocate for simply rem- complete removal from the marketplace. As an economist, my job isn't only to talk about how to improve markets, but it's to talk about where markets aren't appropriate. And this is one of those areas. Um, and that's why I think, you know, people like, like Senator Bernie Sanders are right and, and President Joe Biden's completely wrong in trying to advocate for something like a, a, you know, public option. We wouldn't get the benefits we would if we actually full out decommodify healthcare and transition it fully into the public sphere. And I think that that's a really important, important debate to be having. Um, you know, we, I know we won't have time to go into all the rights here, but, but, um, perhaps we can dig into a couple of them.
0: Yeah, can I, can I jump in? This is great. Um, because at, at, when you first started out talking about food and how the market does a good job, um, and then you went on to talk about market failures, you know, how can we help people understand when the market does a good job of, um, you know, Basically, determining what prices should be and giving us good information and uh, facilitating what should be produced, because this was Hayek 's fear that there, instead of that there would be you know central planning and state planning and so forth, and yet obviously you 're also talking about places where we need to in fact uh, do planning and you know central planning there has to be state involvement and price controls and all these things. Um, you also mentioned decommodification. Uh, and the, the concept of public goods, things that as Polanyi, I don't know if you were referencing Polanyi when you were talking about subordinating, uh, the market to democracy, but like, there are things that are fictitious commodities that weren't created for the purpose of being sold, like human lives, like land, like nature, um, you know. So how should we think about, aside from the particular proposals you're offering, but how conceptually should we think about what things should be uh, planned or uh, not subject to commodification uh, versus those things that, like, let let the market kind of determine production and price? H- how do we think about those those kind of um, differences with uh, our our lives? You know, how, what parts of our lives should the state and our democracy be actively involved in determining what gets produced and and how much it costs or if it costs anything uh, versus uh, subject to market forces?
2: Yeah, you know that—that that is the million-dollar or perhaps trillion-dollar question, I should say, and it's—it's it's a question that I wish I had the most clear and concise answer to you, uh, for you, but it, it's one that I—I I honestly continue to struggle with today. Um, and I think it's easy to look at specific goods and services, but coming up with a grand theory to answer this question is something that you know is continuing to evade me.
0: Or it, maybe. But, Let me put it a different way. Maybe this would be helpful. Like, rent control, something like that, you get a lot of pushback. Now you make good arguments about why this is a different kind of good, and actually it's not true that supply won't increase if you have rent control. Like, you, you, you would take on, uh, the kind of empirical arguments about why there shouldn't be rent control. Um, but are there some things like, in principle, we don't actually care? about the market consequences. We care about making sure everyone has a home. And and like, sure, that'll bleed into what, how are you going to pay for it, which you talk about? But like, my, my concern here is, is, is not necessarily a grand unified theory, but like, are there some things that the, the state should provide? And it so happens that those things tend to also resolve economically in our favor in all these areas. But like, how do we, uh, determine when to cede the argument to empirics and be like, oh, saves money to privatize, we should do that. Versus, well in principle, how about we just ensure uh if real, you know, resource constraints don't obstruct it, everyone has these things, right?
2: Yeah. I mean I, I think what we need Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. And and what I was you know working towards earlier is is this idea that, you know, As a democracy, we need to decide what those goods are and what those services are. So I think the most obvious ones are the ones that I try to outline in the book. You know, housing. You know, people, you can't function if you don't have have a home. And the book, I, I, you know, bring up this conversation I had with uh, Tiana Caldwell, a previously unhoused individual who, you know, looked at me square in the face and said, look, you know, you're never going to be productive on any level if you don't know where you're going to lay your head that night. Um, and, and not only is it about being productive, but it's also just about having a humane society. Um, you know, somebody else who really influenced my, my work quite a bit, uh, was, was Harrington who talked about, you know, how being a poor wasn't just one aspect of a person's life, but it is a person's life. And that, you know, the really only human reaction to this can be just utter outrage. And, and I have to agree with Harrington here. I mean, it's, it's why, you know, you feel your stomach fall when you walk by a homeless person on the street because you realize, like, what is our society doing and why? And and homelessness, poverty, none of these things are necessary. You know, the, these are tools of class warfare. They're not necessary to keep the economy functioning well. In fact, those are incredibly costly. Um you know, having people uh, unhoused, having people unemployed—you know, these are people that are not contributing to our society. That could have been doctors or nurses or teachers or chemists. Uh, you know, you name it, uh, and instead, their their you know lives are being you know kind of wasted, both for them personally, which is a, a moral outrage, but also you know, for. for the broader benefit of society. But it, but to get back to your question, you know, what, how do we think about what goods and, and services? I mean, I really mean that I think this is a question of democracy, that we as a society need to decide, you know, what things belong in the public realm and what things belong in the private realm. And then, you know, where is the in between? Now, mo- most of, uh, most of the economy exists in a gray space. So I talked about agriculture earlier and how it does a fine job at telling me if I should buy apples or oranges. Um, But guess what? All those things are heavily regulated and subsidized by the government, too. I mean, agriculture is probably the most planned sector of the economy, thanks to the farm bill. Um, And and I think we need drastic improvements to it. And so, you know, the question is, is how do we have an economy? How do we have a government that guides the economy to serve the public interest? And that's going to mean far more managed Economy than what we see today. Today we have a well-man, sorry, we have a managed economy. It's just managed for different class interests than what I fight for in the book.
1: Yeah, well, may I mean, <clears throat> maybe you could drill down a little mo- bit more on healthcare because I feel like that's a kind of more concrete example of just what you were talking about. You know, where the dis- like, the inapplicability of markets really comes to the fore. You know, because you just think about markets as a technology. Well, you ration the availability of the service by price. And what that means is, is if you're somebody with like a low income or medium income or even like quite a high income in certain cases, and you have a, a very expensive condition that requires a lot of complicated labor and technology to treat, and that service is allocated by price... You don't get it, and you die. And that's very different. You know, you it's like we talk about health insurance, uh, and people think about it maybe in terms of like home insurance, but they're very different. These are very different services. Home insurance, you pay what you are statistically expected to uh, uh, collect over the life of your, your property. It may work out for you, you know, individually, but it should, you know, you have the you know statistical likelihood of you making a claim on on your insurance plus some profit for the insurer but when you have health insurance there must be systematic transfers from healthy to sick if you don't want people to die for lack of money and like i feel like that just basic fact the, the like That people could just have a turn of bad luck, hit by a car or something like that, require, you know, massively expensive surgeries and just be like, well, looking at your bank account. Oh, you're $10 short. You're dead. And that just a wildly unjust outcome. it, It, I think that, you know, just illustrates that. And, you know, maybe you could talk about some other ways in which markets can be dysfunctional in this, you know, type of context. It illustrates exactly what you're talking about. Markets are a nice technology. They work very well in certain circumstances. They work really terribly in other circumstances. And it's the, pr- the, the, the process of democracy is just to figure out where, where do we, where do we want them to apply? And where is it best for the citizenry as a whole?
2: Yeah. So, you know, the, the thing about healthcare is it's the most straightforward and no-brainer to straight up decommodify. Market failures in healthcare are everywhere. I mean, the, well, any well-functioning markets within the healthcare system simply like don't exist. I mean, I challenge you to find them. <laughs> so, you know, just to, to provide a few examples, I mean, you know, with, if we were to transition away from the current healthcare system, which takes up roughly one in $5 within our, our gross domestic product, I mean, it sucks up a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, both American labor and American wealth. If we were to transition away from our current system to a single-payer system, you know, first of all, it would be substantially cheaper because given how complex our system is, the amount of money wasted trying to navigate it is just astronomical. Um, Second of all, we would be able to cover everybody, truly everybody, whereas today, despite the passage of the Affordable Care Act, we still have one in four Americans either uninsured or underinsured. Um, This drastically affects, you know, human well-being. I mean, US life expectancy is twenty-eighth out of thirty six in the OECD, right next to countries like Estonia and Czech Republic. These are countries that have incomes of like roughly half of ours. Um, yet we're we're way down the the list precisely because of how we've structured the market. Now I go to the doctor and the doctor tells me, oh, you need to go get an MRI on your shoulder. And I call up two places and I make an appointment. It might be the case at one place the MRI is only $4,000 and the other place the MRI is $15,000. I have no idea. Do you ever ask how much your health care costs? I don't. Um, I don't know about the rest of you. Uh, but, but that's not one of the questions I, I tend to ask. And it's precisely because we have this insurance system. But because we have a kind of free-for-all, prices are just all over the board because they're just not transparent whatsoever, which leads to just huge amounts of of waste and bloat in the system. Um, you know, uh, another example is when you're actually getting direct care. I mean, you know, when, when you need life-saving care, you don't care what it's gonna cost, but are you gonna sit there and negotiate, well, is this anesthesiologist that's about to put me down after my car accident, are they in my network? Because if not, you might be forced, you know, to pay a $20,000 bill later on. You know, this happens, you know, unfortunately, time and time again. I mean, medical debt is one of the leading causes of bankruptcy here in America. And so the examples are pervasive for rampant market failures in the healthcare system. Whereas, you know, we have lots of examples from other countries that show us that you know healthcare functions quite well when essentially, you know, run on a single payer type system. You know, the other thing I want to note here too, what I try to do in the book is not just provide the economic rationale for, you know, why something like universal healthcare makes sense and debunk kind of common the common critiques associated with Medicare for All type program, but also to provide some history. You know, Medicare for All was the original idea behind Medicare. Now, the, the original legislation was intended to be a universal healthcare system. And, and unfortunately, you know, they didn't have the votes and so they whittled it down the healthcare for the elderly and and you know one of the key art architects said well next year we'll win kitty care and we'll get universal healthcare for everybody under 18 and within 5 years we'll get true universal healthcare and that was the idea and you know here we are you know 60 plus years later um, and we don't even have kitty care yet. Although I actually think that would be a, a good place, uh, for us to start the conversation in terms of expanding Medicare. Uh, kids are, kids are cheap because in general they're fairly healthy. And, and who can be against providing health care for kiddos?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I favor that. Yeah. Uh, advance in those demagogic possible fashion. You know, if, if you don't support kitty care, you're literally in favor of child murder. Um, the, uh, in the context, you know, maybe again, in the, in, in terms of healthcare, a good, a good window into the like, like final part of your book, which is about how you pay, how are you going to pay for that? That's actually the title of my book, um, which is rather similar to yours in some disturbing ways. Uh, you know, great minds think alike. In fact, that's what I'm going to conclude. Um, you know, there, there's a, there,
0: it's like when Einstein and others had e equals mc squared at the same time in their minds. He yeah, just got there yeah, first. Yeah, Dar- like the, Darwin, the kind of cosmic wisdom that you guys tapped yeah, into.
1: Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, you know, discovering re- evolution at the same time. Um, yeah. In fact, you know, as there good collectivists, I actually say this in my book. You know, nobody ever figures anything out by themselves ever. You know the, it's it's always it's always bubbling around in society. Anyway, how do we how do we pay for it? Uh, you know, you say healthcare, American healthcare, it's the most expensive in the world. And it's also dog shit. You know, we have like C minus healthcare and we're paying triple premium luxury Hilton, you know, grand platinum plus prices for it. You know, like another five points of GDP, like a trillion dollars a year, uh, for in, uh, insurance that doesn't even cover everybody. Um, so, you know, you, you talk about, in the book, a uh, 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 money versus real resources, you know, versus like, how do you, how could you actually concretely move towards this type of much more uh, generous social, uh, state? So can you, can you sort of run us through the basic logic of that?
2: Yeah. I mean, this is the question that constantly comes up whenever progressives say they want to make sure that everybody has nice things. Uh, and it's like, yeah, you know, we'd love to give everybody a pony, but you're just going to bankrupt the nation and everybody will be poorer for it. Um, well, you know, as an economist, I can tell you that they're wrong. And indeed, we can afford nice things for everybody. I mean, I like to think of myself a little bit as a bougie socialist. I I do like nice things and I do think we can all have them in moderation. Uh, every one of us can have a nice place to live. Every one of us can have health care. Every one of us can have a job and, you know, a place in our town to go see the theater and, and so much more. We just need to will it into existence and, and collectively work to make it happen. So how do we actually pay for these things? Because it's an important question that we can't simply wave away so that, you know, as you highlight, I think there's two important distinctions we need to make when that question gets asked. One is where will the dollars come from? And two is where will the real resources come from? And what I contend in the book is the first question is the easy part. The second question is the legitimate challenge. So let's, let's talk about the first part. Where, where does the money actually come from first? And, you know, here I, I outline kind of a, a number of ways in which we can pay for an economic bill of rights, which I, you know, I want to be honest about will be expensive. You know, these are big, bold proposals that are going to require substantial investment, uh, by the federal government. And, you know, the, the first and most straightforward thing is we need to move our current federal spending away from subsidizing, uh, violence and extraction and towards subsidizing human flourishing. Uh, you know, the authors of the Freedom Budget, who essentially wrote a very similar, you know, call for an economic bill of rights, uh, this was authored by A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin with a forward by King as, as the centerpiece of the Poor People's Campaign following the passage of the Civil and Voting Rights Acts. Uh, you know, they got this and they basically tried to, to outline the fact that, you know, the federal budget is a moral document that shows our national priorities. So we need to change our national priorities. This means reorienting some of our spending. Uh, you know, the other two areas is that taxes will go up on people. Now, let me explain something, though. That doesn't mean you're worse off. That doesn't mean you have less money in your pocket at the end of the day. And this is what infuriates me about the narrative here. Uh, there was this calculator that Vox put out um it, during the 2016 presidential election that just showed everybody getting poorer under people like, you know, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton's policies. But they, the problem is, is that they're only tallying up half the equation. They forgot about this whole thing of benefits. that so you actually get something for paying your taxes. <laughs> so let me use myself as an example. I have a good job. I am a tenure track faculty at a major university. And guess what? I pay $830 a month for my health insurance and it sucks. OK, it absolutely sucks. Now, if my if I if we transition to a public health insurance system and my tax bill goes up five hundred dollars a month, but all of a sudden I don't need to pay eight hundred and thirty a month towards health care premiums, let alone my, you know, five thousand dollar deductible and pays and all the other things that come along with it. I am financially better off. I have better, more secure health insurance and more money in my pocket at the end of the day. So taxes going up is not necessarily a bad thing. We need to think about this in a comprehensive way, not just simply say taxes up are bad. Um, so that's you know kind of one example. There will be broad-based tax increases for some of the programs. The final thing is you know tax the rich. You know I mean we talk a lot about when I teach economics, I teach my students about this thing called the Pagovian tax. And for a second, their eyes glaze over. And then we start talking about carbon taxes, and they become slightly interested. It's a tax on negative externalities. Um, pollution is a good example of a negative externality. But the rich are also a good example of a negative externality. They They... You know, and and so taxing the hell out of the rich is not only going to free up economic space to do important things, but it also protects our democracy from the Elon Musks and the Donald Trumps, although Donald Trump's not actually rich. So, you know, I'm not sure how, how much he would have to pay here. Um, and, you know, the Jeff Bezos of the world and in a way that not only makes us on a better economic footing, but also, you know, protects our, our political system. And that's how you pay for it. It's really not that hard. The hard part is the real resources. We're going to need to train a hell of a lot more nurses and doctors and teachers and hopefully college professors um, and and more. And that will be a complicated, but I think completely manageable system. But that's where you know economists should be turning their minds. Um they did this in World War II. This is where you know input-output tables kind of originated, which is figuring out how do we make sure we have enough steel to build enough bombers to defeat Nazi Germany. The questions today are different. How do we build enough solar power um, and wind turbines to ensure we don't burn our planet to, you know, down to the ground? And how do we make sure we have enough houses to ensure that nobody lives on the streets? You know, they are different questions, but, you know, it's essentially the same idea.
0: I wish we could tax fascists and neoliberals out of existence because they're negative externalities, too. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it occurs to me – we just have a few minutes left, so there's so many things we could get to. But uh, you are one of the few, like Jeff Spross, that uh, are not caught in the binary job guarantee – Basic income, job guarantee, basic income. Why not both, uh, Spross says, and you argue as well. well, uh, It seems so obvious to me that they go together well. Uh, maybe you could talk a bit about why those who don't think that goes together well are missing something. Why Why are the job guarantee and, and basic income, uh, you know, like peanut butter and jelly?
2: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I'm going to say I'm, I'm a little guilty here because when I first started working on these questions, I was a little bit in the job guarantee camp. And uh, you know the the reason I was a little bit in the job guarantee camp, just for a bit of background here, is because I think a tremendous amount of dignity comes through work in our in our current society. Now that that could change, right? But society's changed slowly, and right now, you know, or it should it, it should if you have a good job, yeah, right? it should, it absolutely should. But like, hey, I'm a national park enthusiast. And when I go walk around our stunning national parks and I see something that was built in the 1930s by the Civilian Conservation Corps, like that is pride right there. I mean, like we can build beautiful things for you know ourselves, for our families and for future generations to enjoy. And for those of us that are willing and able to partake, I think that is great. Now, you know, that said, you know, there isn't an either or it's a complete false trade off and it's because people fall into the trap of scarcity. It's that we don't have enough. We have to choose one or we have to choose the other. And I just fundamentally reject that notion. I mean, we should have a job guarantee to provide well-paid employment for everybody who's willing and able to work. And for folks who choose not to work or are unable to work for some reason, we should have a basic income. You now, this means that caregivers, for instance, are also rewarded for their work. That's just not technically market work and still work. I mean, I have a nine-month-old. I take care of him all the time. And let me tell you, it is hard work. <laughs> Some days I'd rather be in the office, you know, or teaching my students than, than you know, on baby duty all day. I mean, it is brutal, brutally hard work sometimes and, and also incredibly rewarding, to be sure. Uh, but But a basic income recognizes that everybody needs to be able to purchase basic goods and services, regardless of if they're working or not. And we are a rich society. We can afford to do that. I mean, we are so rich. If wealth was distributed equally in this country, each and every one of us would have half a million dollars. If income were distributed equally, we'd each have $95,000 a year to our name. Uh, so I think we can afford a modest, basic income to you know ensure nobody goes without. Uh, the one other person I will just briefly mention who who also believe these uh, go together like peanut butter and jelly is Martin Luther King. I mean, he strongly advocated for both in his career um, and had both as uh, key parts of his economic reform agenda.
1: Yeah. Yeah. People forget that about uh, uh, MLK, that, you know, he, he won, you know, with the, with the assistance of many others, the, the civil rights legislation, and then he moved on towards economic stuff and he became dramatically less popular. Um, but you know, I think that what you're just saying now is, is much more accurate now, even than it probably was in the 1960s insofar as that doing what you suggest would benefit the vast majority of the population, even up to like middle class, Uh, white collar college professors, uh, you know, and journalists like myself, you know, just like raise my taxes by 10% and give me Medicare. I will take that deal in a heartbeat. Um, And it's it.
0: Well, and, and these, these problems that you point out are disproportionately affecting, uh, of course, people of color, women, uh, the most vulnerable, the elderly, the disabled, uh, the, the universal solutions also close those gaps in, that particularly harm those groups, um, you know. And so I think people forget that as well, that it's for everyone, but also it addresses these particular needs, right?
2: Targeted universalism is what we call it. that That's exactly right. I mean, look, I mean, Wilbur Ross, who's one of the key architects at the New Deal, had this great quip, which was, you know, programs for the poor make poor programs. And I think he was absolutely right. And so the question is, how do we all have nice things while simultaneously narrowing the gap? How do we, you know, we not only just want to set that floor, but we want to squeeze, uh, you know, uh, squeeze inequality and, and kind of have a much greater degree of convergence than we've had. I mean, we kept telling being told this story that, you know, economic growth will result in conversions both within and between countries. And it's all bullshit. Uh, it's just ne- it's never happened. It's never going to happen <laughs> without, yeah, you know, yeah. serious policy efforts.
0: Well, can can I put a bow on this or have you put a bow on this by my last question? Uh, You obviously are writing in line with with the great Harvey J.K. and his work uh, on American history because part of what your book shows is that this vision this this positive agenda, this future that we could have is actually in keeping with the promise of the country uh and there's a tradition over our history uh throughout not just of the white supremacist uh not just of the Lochner era and the neoliberals but also of the the understanding of freedom and democracy that you're pushing for here so we we need to draw on our history don't we to understand the future that we deserve something like that
2: we do we do you know i mean we have dark and troubled times in our history and we have beautiful ideas that we have fought for in this country and we need to reclaim it you know we can't just walk away from the brilliant ideas of the thomas Paines and the you know lincoln's and you know the like um and you know roosevelt i think was standing on the shoulders of giants as were those who came, you know, after him. I mean, in, in, in writing this book, I mean, I did not invent most of these ideas. I am borrowing these ideas from many brilliant thinkers that came before me and trying to put them together in a package that you know fits the political moment um and, and tries to intervene in our debate to actually put forth a post neoliberal agenda that I hope people can rally behind. And this isn't just a Democrat or a Republican issue either. I mean, we actually did some polling on the economic bill of rights. And the majority, not just of Democrats, but of independents and Republicans, strongly support an economic Bill of Rights for the twenty-first century. And what's amazing is even when I out when we outline the exact programs. And, you know, take it away from the abstract. In the abstract, do you support universal healthcare? When we actually ask them, do you support, you know, a Medicare for all type program, a job guarantee type program, and provide the details? I mean, the vast majority of Americans support each and every one of these rights. You know, people get it. I mean, and I think that it's time that, that we run on a agenda that actually, you know, protects and, and serves the American people. And, and just to, to your earlier point about, you know, this isn't just for, for poor people. I mean, you know, uh, you know I, the bottom 90 percent of Americans are going to be better off under these programs. And in fact, you know, those in the 90th percent to the 98th, 99th percent will might not be better off financially. But let me tell you, they'll be better off in a lot of other ways because we'll live in a much less unstable, much you know more democratic and, and much safer society when we actually take care of one another than the world we find ourselves in today. Now, the top one percent or, you know, one tenth of one percent, you know, I'm fine with them doing a little worse.
1: Yeah. I'd say maybe as a closing comment uh, that I think being a hyper billionaire like Elon Musk is maybe one of the worst things that could happen to somebody. Um, you know, that's right. Uh, you, you, you can't relate to anybody. You have no real friends. You end up inevitably surrounded by yes men and toadies who are trying to extract your, you know, to just get money from you by hook or by crook. Um, and, you know, you, you, you alienate yourself from the broader community outside of, you know, your, your social groups. You know, you can't relate to jeffrey q Cornhusker in iowa it's like you you don't you live in completely different universes and that's unhealthy for anybody um you know we're social beings and we uh need to uh have real relationships to be healthy mentally and physically and um you know surgeon general report just came out a couple days ago said said loneliness is as bad as smoking for your health um and I, I, I can't it's hard to imagine um, being more lonely than an ultra billionaire. So, yeah, we got to we got to raise taxes uh, to the top marginal tax bracket up to 94 percent where FDR put it, if not higher for the good of society and for the good of the ultra billionaires will Be thrown down into the pit of muck with the rest of us pigs and learn to be human beings once again. <laughs> um, and I look forward to uh meeting Elon down there in the slop with the rest of them
0: <laughs> where, where he can finally have actual freedom and be actually part of human flourishing, exactly. right? In society, oh,
1: but uh. Mark Paul, the book is called (laughs) Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost uh, Promise of Economic Rights. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: It's coming out May May 12th, everyone. May 12th.
1: (laughs) And thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.